Perhaps just in time. Each U.S. citizen now has a choice. You can stay on the fiat standard, in which some people get to produce unlimited new units of money for free, just not you. Or opt in to the Bitcoin standard, in which no one gets to do that, including you. With the option now of a monetary system governed by rules instead of rulers, on behalf of myself, my family, and the firms I'm responsible for leading, I've made my choice. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, FOMOsexuals? We have got a great piece today. This one was requested like 50 million times. Uh, it is a bit of a beast, but it's amazing. We have the Stone Ridge 2020 shareholder letter, which doesn't sound like it would be amazing. It needs a better title. Uh, maybe, maybe a working title would be What is Water? Uh, I love that analogy that they start off with, but it is by uh, the Stone Ridge CEO and founder, Ross L. Stevens, uh, and it is their shareholder letter. Um, and it is an excellent breakdown of Bitcoin in the context of the current world environment and managing the risks of a cracking global monetary standard, really. Um, some quick love before we get into it for the BitBox hardware wallet. They are the best in the biz for your cold storage. And since it basically tripled in value since like November, you want the best. Um, and then we have uh, our Bitcoin mobile banking services at level.co, LVL.co, and, uh, and a free trading exchange. You know, be done with the trading fee model and trade currencies for free. Uh, check them both out at guyswan.com. They are right at the top of the page. But with that, it's time to get into this awesome piece. You're going to love this one, but don't get too bullish. This one is titled The Stone Ridge 2020 Shareholder Letter by Ross L. Stevens, Founder and CEO. This is the shareholder letter included in the 2020 annual report for our mutual funds. Quote, There's an infinite amount of cash in the Federal Reserve. Neil Kashkari, President of the Federal Reserve of Minneapolis, March 22, 2020. Quote, We're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. Jerome Powell, Chairman of the Federal Reserve, June 10th. 2020. Quote, the network is robust in its unstructured simplicity. Satoshi Nakamoto, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, October 31st, 2008. Quote, life, uh, finds a way. Dr. Ian Malcolm, Jurassic Park. If the opponent does not move, then I do not move. At the opponent's slightest move, I move first. Wu Yusheng, 19th century Chinese sage. Quote, Nowhere will you find the statue of a critic or the biography of a committee. Banksy. December 2020. Dear fellow shareholder, 
shortly before the genius David Foster Wallace died. He delivered a college commencement speech that opens with a beautiful critique of our, quote, default setting. Quote, There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and says, What the hell is water? Wallace goes on to teach us that sometimes, quote, the most obvious, most important realities are the ones that are hardest to see. For Americans alive today, one of our, quote, what's water questions is, what's money? While Wallace asked the graduating seniors that day to think about fish and their relationship with water, I'll ask you to think with me about our own relationships with money. And as Wallace also asked, quote, bracket for just a few minutes your skepticism of the totally obvious and reconsider what is real and essential, hidden in plain sight, all around us, all the time. America and sound money Our country is blessed with limitless natural resources, giant oceans protecting us on the left and the right, and friendly neighbors to the north and south. We've got a military that any other country would trade for theirs, a political class constrained by an ingenious system of checks and balances, and a built-in self-correcting mechanism of free elections. Almost 250 years later, it's easy to forget how uniquely successful the American experiment has been. Unsound money just isn't us, and hyperinflation is something that only, quote, other people sometimes have, right? Indeed, outside of our incredible country, the world has experienced an astonishing 56 hyperinflations in the last roughly 100 years. This means that in some country, somewhere, quote, over there, every other year, an innocent population lost their life savings and certainly their dignity simply because they stored it in the wrong vessel. What will continue to make the U.S. different? What will keep our money secure? Our departure from the gold standard is a recent phenomenon, and the unprecedented money printing by developed nations even more so. Let's explore together whether the soundness of our money or lack thereof is one of those, quote, most obvious, most important realities, hardest to see, hidden in plain sight all around us. Quote, the most significant monetary achievement in the history of the world. President Nixon thundered these words on December 18, 1971, in a surprise weekend national address announcing the Smithsonian Agreement. The agreement, following another surprise weekend address earlier that year, the Nixon shock of August 15th, which took the U.S. off the gold standard, replacing it with the fiat standard i.e. U.S. Government Paper Money, or USGPM, coordinated the simultaneous anchoring of each G10 currency to U.S. Government Paper Money via fixed exchange rates. Prior to the Nixon shock and the Smithsonian Agreement, and as motivation for them, Nobel Prize winners and politicians were convinced that gold gave no value to U.S. dollars, 
Rather, U.S. dollars gave value to gold. Thus, the U.S. could safely go off the gold standard, and correspondingly, the G10 could safely peg their currencies to the U.S. government paper money. Quote, Every expert knows that the popular conception that money has more value if it is exchangeable into gold exactly reverses the true relation. Were it not that gold has some monetary uses, its value would be much less than it is today. $35 an ounce. Paul Samuelson, Nobel Prize winner. Quote, When the U.S. government stops wasting our resources by trying to maintain the price of gold, its price will sink to $6 an ounce, rather than the current 35 Congressman Henry Roos. In a little over a year, this, quote, most significant monetary achievement smashed apart on the rocks of economic reality. Instead of gold crashing to $6 an ounce, by early 1973, it was the U.S. government paper money that crashed to $125 an ounce, a level unthinkable to Samuelson's every expert and to U.S. congressmen. As U.S. government paper money crashed, the G10 began to see the P or paper in U.S. government paper money, for what it was, and one by one, quietly abandoned the agreement. Far from a temporal fluke, in the ensuing 50 years, U.S. government paper money has depreciated versus gold about 8% per year. Paper is paper. What is money? Money is, and always has been, technology. Specifically, money is technology for making our wealth today available for consumption tomorrow. Modern Americans with a what's-water mindset about money, virtually all of us, assume there is a sharp line of distinction between what is money and what is not. That's false. Instead, throughout history, various monies, note plural, have always existed. Money is unique among all goods we seek because we value money not for its own sake, but rather solely for its prospective exchange utility. That's a fancy way of saying we hope it keeps its value long enough to enable us to trade it in the future for stuff we actually want. The question of which money humans will choose, therefore, boils down to which good or goods any individual believes will best store the sum total of their lifetime of daily labor. In other words, their life force. Because the most important trades we make are the ones we make with our future selves, humanity's Darwinian propulsion towards holding the soundest money possible is based on our intuitive understanding that the longer our choice of money can hold its value, the greater the potential compounding benefits of our life-to-date production. Our timeless search for ever-sounder money is an individual, institution-based optimization as unstoppable as evolution, because we instinctively know that our survival is at stake. Will our life force be durably storable in a particularly well-chosen money, and therefore potentially accumulate, enhancing our potential longevity? Or will it dissipate, no matter how hard we work, because we chose the wrong storage vessel, threatening our very lives and those of our progeny? Note, for example of monies, beads, shells, cattle, salt, 
silver, gold, cigarettes in all prisons, tampons in women's prisons, gift cards and airline miles, just to name a few. The key point is that monies are A, always plural, and B, ever-changing, ideally slowly, to facilitate the development of civilization. Simultaneously, along a continuum of soundness, subject to competitive monetary network effects. Sound money, along with language, were the first and have forever been the most important human networks responsible for human flourishing. Imagine life without them. Life, uh, finds a way. Since its founding in 1913, the Federal Reserve, or Fed, has upended our Darwinian propulsion. Temporarily. The entire edifice of modern central banking, unbacked helicopter money, is like one gigantic helicopter parent, never letting their child suffer, quote, the blessing of a skinned knee. When the Fed doles out billions or trillions of U.S. government paper money, it has the immediate effect of helping the favored few who first receive it, directly or indirectly, plus all pre-existing financial asset owners, at the expense of everyone else. When Chairman Powell says, quote, inequality is not related to monetary policy, I believe he would pass a lie detector test. That doesn't mean it's true. Beyond the fundamental unfairness of both its temporal and ultimately uneven distribution, government paper money leaves the fidelity of an economy's relative price signals in tatters. Prices matter. In a ways-like manner, prices guide billions of economic turns a day, constantly updating based on new, real-time information made individually by billions of humans around the world more than 99.999% of whom don't know each other, will never meet each other, and almost certainly don't realize that price signals, distorted or not, coordinate their actions, for better or worse. Then-Fed Chairman Bernanke in 2009 succinctly and honestly, if shockingly, referred to the Fed's money creation process via commercial bank intermediation by saying, quote, we simply use the computer to mark up the size of the account they have with the Fed, end quote. The money so A, quote, created, and then B, multiplied, because only fractional bank reserves are required, and then C, lent out by banks. First, as discussed, impairs the fidelity of economy-wide price signals. Thereby, second, inefficiently draws human and capital resources into activities that cannot be lastingly maintained. Thereby, third, drives temporary illusions of relative prosperity in certain economic segments and despair in others. And therefore, fourth, leads inevitably and repeatedly to booms and busts. Modern central banking is the cause of severe economic downdrafts, not the cure. By giving in to the clamor for ever more abundant and ever cheaper money, central banks cripple the role of the wisest regulator, the market, of the most important mechanism for efficient economy-wide allocation of capital, relative prices of sound money.
In the same way that a stock certificate is titled to company capital, money is titled to human time. People sacrifice their time for money, which enables them to trade for commensurate sacrifices from others. When prices are distorted, we are each inhumanely robbed of making fully informed personal choices about our time. If you give anyone the power to print money, they will print money. A tool that can command human time is an object of great temptation. Too great. I don't question that central bankers are well-intentioned. I strongly believe they are. But I also know what Lord Acton said about absolute power. It's human nature, not finance or politics. Just like certain offspring of helicopter parents, those underemployed, glassy-eyed 25-year-olds living in their parents' basements who have neither the will nor ability nor, in some cases, even permission to leave, the offspring of central bank helicopter money, certain over-levered, glassy-eyed companies in certain segments of over-money-supplied industries, cannot survive without ongoing access to the essentially free U.S. government paper money that they indirectly borrow. Like the smooth-kneed 25-year-olds, those over-moneyed zombie firms have neither the will, when U.S. government paper money is free, why bother with financial discipline, nor ability, our business model doesn't work at higher interest rates, nor in some cases even permission to leave. You bail us out because we employ so many voters, or because we intermediate and credit multiply your monetary policy. U.S. government paper money facilitates political concession after concession, stimulating ever new expectations of further bounty, making the process itself self-accelerating. Even those in government who genuinely want to avoid printing paper money and handing it out find it impossible to stop the system. The bottom line, without the rigid barrier of strictly limited funds, that is, with non-scarce money, Nothing will stop indefinite growth of government expenditure. Untethered to the future generational tax burden, it is simultaneously exploding and expropriating. No wonder millennials feel the game is rigged against them. It is. We now exit 2020, with government money printers around the world going burr, cranking out, insert country name here, government paper money by the ton flying downhill like a Nikola truck with no brakes. Temporarily, any central bank can control the supply of their money. They can't make their people value it. Enter Bitcoin, because life, uh, finds a way. Darwinian Propulsion At first glance, geography might seem the least dynamic of sciences, rooted in the glacial-paced realities of geology. Today's global data linkages, however, lie blanket-like atop that slow-moving geological layer, their high-velocity networks a new kind of geography. Mathematicians and data architects call the landscape they represent a topology, that is, any kind of map that can be rearranged due to connection. Unlike geographies, topologies in this context represent places with distance and speed determining how, quote, far apart they are. Geographies are constant. Topologies can change in an instant. New York and Tokyo are always 6,731 miles apart, 
That's geography. New York and Tokyo are also about 176 milliseconds apart and getting closer. That's topology. Every new piece of a network, every new platform or protocol has the potential to fundamentally alter how we connect. Something far away, including across national borders, can suddenly be with one innovation right on top of you. Location can become as changeable as the power of, for example, a new network protocol. Quote, locational utility refers to the knotting together of distance and speed such that something becomes more useful or powerful as it's drawn closer by increased connection, even if it remains the same, quote, distance away. Just as the early architects of steamships, rails, highways, airlines, and networked computers each wildly underguessed how popular their space-time compression inventions would be, Satoshi Nakamoto could not have possibly imagined how popular and therefore how powerful his new protocol-powered monetary topology could be. The network is robust in its unstructured simplicity. In many countries, it is illegal for women to have a bank account or even work, while the men learn, earn, and create independence for themselves. Trapped in a restrictive, oppressive, domestic cage, these women have historically been forced to do as they're told, with no freedom to make a living, develop professional skills, or cultivate a sense of self, let alone create financial independence. Bitcoin is fixing this. Leveraging Bitcoin's growing network and their smartphones, these women can and do find jobs online, secretly for now, and get paid in Bitcoin. They become copy editors and transcriptionists. They proofread, do data entry, and take surveys. Remotely and quietly, they do anything that's doable online. Bitcoin offers them an exit option, an off-ramp. Bitcoin demolishes their cage. Today, gradually. Tomorrow, suddenly. In the hundred-plus countries where our what's-water-money analogy is as patently obvious to its citizens as it has been utterly invisible to us, primordial forces have been unleashed in a one-way torrent of increasing human liberty, one impoverished, caged human at a time. While lurching in fits and starts for now, the power of the movement, because it rides upon and accelerates our Darwinian propulsion towards sound money, and therefore towards survival, is unstoppable. Fate-changing topological shifts the Arab Spring, Brexit, Bitcoin, can quickly render the powerful weak and the powerless strong. Institutions and ideologies that can deliver space-time compression will grow, thrive, and accelerate. Those that cannot, slowed perhaps by their obsession with control over speed, or perhaps their, quote, skepticism of the totally obvious, will miss the turn. Acknowledging with profound humility that we are only one firm. A major goal of our Bitcoin-focused affiliate is to help America avoid missing the Bitcoin turn. My Big Four Bitcoin Aha Moments Bitcoin is a journey, not a destination, and everyone is on their own path. Every morning when I study Bitcoin, I find myself deeper in awe, humbled by the power and potential of its unstructured simplicity. 
the more I learn about Bitcoin, the more I realize how much there is to know and how much I want to know. There is beauty in Bitcoin. I study Bitcoin standing on the shoulders of giants, pioneers who have come before me and blazed the trail. There have been dozens of moments in my past eight years of morning study when I had to put down the book or pause the podcast, sitting in stunned silence for a while, after reading or hearing something that I knew immediately would change my worldview forever. If you study Bitcoin intensely, with humility, and are mindful of Wallace's deep wisdom that sometimes, quote, the most obvious, most important realities are the ones that are hardest to see. You will end up seeing a lot that you can't unsee. I certainly did. The biggest Bitcoin aha moments from the past eight years of my early morning ritual, quite a long list, difficult for me to curate to just four, are below. 1. Saleability across time. Gold has been a reliable store of value because of its scarcity and historically low annual supply growth of only 1 to 2% per year. There has never been a, quote, gold hyperinflation. Indeed, gold has held its value over the centuries while hundreds of other monies have come and gone. However, gold's supply is not impervious to its demand. If hypothetically gold went to $100,000 per ounce tomorrow, up more than 50x overnight, we can be sure enormous resources would immediately shift to gold mining, and the miners would find some way, somehow, to accelerate its supply growth, driving its value down. In contrast, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Bitcoin's annual supply growth, which asymptotically approaches zero over time, is now down to about 1%, on par with the historical annual growth in the supply of gold. While far from perfect, gold is Bitcoin's closest real-world analogy. However, the ultimate supply of Bitcoin is fundamentally limited by the design of the protocol itself and cannot be increased regardless of its value or the level of demand. Bitcoin is the first store of value in history for which its supply is entirely unaffected by increased demand. From this perspective, Bitcoin is better at being gold than gold. It's even more saleable across time. 2. Saleability Across Space As we moved beyond traveling by foot and horse, beyond the development of affordable commercial air travel, and then especially beyond the Internet's Cambrian-like explosion of network power, gold's low spatial saleability became an acute flaw even the most ardent gold bugs miss. Gold is simply hard to transport. This is where U.S. government paper money, or the fiat standard in general, shines. Though fiat's periodic, human-nature-induced hyperinflations made it a huge step backwards in terms of saleability across time, it was a substantial leap forward in terms of saleability across space. However, contrary to common misconception, Bitcoin moves much faster across space than fiat increasing our capacity for long-distance international settlement by about 500,000 transactions a day and completing that settlement in about an hour rather than the current state-of-the-art three to five days or longer for final international fiat settlement. 
Bitcoin's protocol and network topology renders national borders irrelevant, which is especially empowering to the world's most vulnerable and unprepared for fiat hyperinflations. Think Venezuela, Turkey, or Lebanon today. Even within a country like ours, do not confuse the speed of your visa payment with its final settlement. No settlement occurs when you buy your coffee at Starbucks. Rather, your bank and Starbucks bank generally settle two to three days later, with each bank taking credit risk to the other along the way, with rare but occasionally disastrous results. Bitcoin safely settles about every hour, and as a bearer instrument, credit risk is not a concept. From this perspective, Bitcoin is better at being fiat than fiat. It's even more saleable across space, and because it's not debt like fiat, has no credit risk. 3. The Difficulty Adjustment Everything Satoshi did in inventing Bitcoin was non-original. His genius was in seeing how combining a specific set of previously solved problems could, together, solve certain unsolved problems, except the difficulty adjustment. The difficulty adjustment, entirely original, is, in my opinion, Satoshi's most underappreciated breakthrough, a truly genius application of game theory, and the fundamental reason why Bitcoin's network has always been secure. So what is it? Suppose Bitcoin's price rises, creating an incentive for more Bitcoin miners to mine. Remember, successful mining results in Bitcoin rewards, thus the continuous link between Bitcoin's price and the total worldwide mining incentive. In this case, the Bitcoin protocol will automatically raise the difficulty of mining, such that the creation of new Bitcoin and the timing of transaction verification does not accelerate beyond its preset schedule about every 10 minutes. Instead, suppose Bitcoin's price falls and subsequently higher marginal cost Bitcoin miners rationally turn off their machines. The Bitcoin protocol will automatically reduce the difficulty of mining such that the creation of new Bitcoin and the timing of transaction verification does not decelerate below its preset schedule. How does the protocol do this? Imagine that I tell you that the product of two prime numbers is a certain three-digit number, and I ask you to guess the two primes. And I also remind you that a property of prime numbers is that the product of two primes is uniquely the product of those specific two primes. There is no closed-form solution to my question which is a fancy way of saying you have to randomly guess until you figure it out. Since I told you the product of the primes is only three digits, you'd probably be able to guess the two primes fairly quickly. However, suppose I told you the product was five digits. How about 10 digits? How about 20 digits? You can quickly see how much harder and harder and then way, way, way harder the random guessing can become. The difficulty adjustment is akin to adjusting the number of digits of the product of the primes as a function of how much mining power is online at any given time. The more miners, the greater the number of digits of the product of the primes. The fewer miners, the smaller the number of the digits, such that even if all commercial Bitcoin miners and their combined supercomputing power suddenly went offline overnight, Hobbyists mining on laptops at Starbucks would keep the entire global Bitcoin network just as secure. 
Bottom line, the difficulty adjustment was the missing piece of the decades of previous attempts at decentralized electronic money. It ensures that every 10 minutes, a new Bitcoin block is rewarded and all transactions in the interim are accurately and immutably verified. It is what drives Bitcoin's saleability across time discussed above. Even amidst periods of surging demand for Bitcoin, Bitcoin miners have no ability to mine Bitcoin faster, making unexpected inflation impossible forever. Typical of Satoshi's understated style, the difficulty adjustment was described in just two sentences in his original Bitcoin white paper. Quote, Mining difficulty is determined by a moving average targeting an average number of blocks per hour. If they are generated too fast, the difficulty increases. End quote. As an aside, the difficulty adjustment also serves to limit wasted mining energy, further incentivizing miners to mine, but that benefit pales in comparison to its impact making Bitcoin inflation-proof. The difficulty adjustment has now been continuously tested for 12 years, at total global network power levels ranging from just a few laptops all the way up to enough energy to power New York City, and with lots of total network power volatility along the way. The total network power volatility is what requires the Bitcoin protocol to continually adjust the mining difficulty, akin to continually adjusting the number of digits of the product of the two primes. And astonishingly, just as Satoshi designed, no matter the global mining capacity or its variability, a new block is verified every 10 minutes. Every 10 minutes. Every 10 minutes. Speaking of energy. Number four, Bitcoin's use of energy. The amount of energy Bitcoin consumes is the sum total of the energy consumption of all the mining machines that secure the network. While hard to know exactly, a good estimate of the global total consumption is about 8 to 10 million people worth of energy. Absolutely enormous. In a warming world, how can this be good? First, the principle. Bitcoin is a better technology for performing central banking than the current government monopolies on central banking. In the same way that cars consume far more energy than the bikes and horses they replaced, and electric lights replaced candles, and central heating replaced chimneys, and computers replaced typewriters, Bitcoin's better monetary system consumes far more energy than the current central banking system. Throughout history, energy use has grown whenever free people making free choices have decided for themselves that the price of the extra energy for the new technology they wanted was worth it. Today, Every day, 24-7, Bitcoiners around the world make the decision that the price of Bitcoin's energy use is worth it because Bitcoin is better technology for money. Second, the practice. Bitcoin mining is the only profitable use of energy in human history that does not need to be located near human settlement to operate. The long-term implications of this are world-changing and hiding in plain sight. Before Bitcoin, the problem of energy has never been its scarcity, but only our ability to channel it geographically where it is needed most. Before Bitcoin, that was exclusively where humans lived. In contrast, Bitcoin's mining energy is solving a different problem, 
Because of satellites and wireless internet connections, Bitcoin mining can be located anywhere. For example, remote, destitute areas blessed with moving water can monetize their natural resource, good fortune, by creating clean hydro energy and using it to mine Bitcoin. Thus, Bitcoin can make monetizable, isolated energy sources all over the world, like waterfalls, running rivers, or creatable dams, that are now entirely untapped because they would be cost prohibitive to connect to electric grids close enough to residential or industrial areas. In doing so, Bitcoin can fundamentally change the economics of energy by introducing a highly profitable use of electricity that is location independent. The world has never had a profitable use of energy that's location independent. Now it does. And since fossil fuels are already too expensive to be a profitable source of Bitcoin mining energy, I believe the only long-term profitable Bitcoin mining will be powered by hydro. Imagine a future with Bitcoin mining firms unsubsidized in extraordinarily isolated locations. Visualize a waterfall in a largely population-free part of an African country suffering from abject poverty. Easily connected to the Bitcoin network, building serious energy infrastructure to monetize the local clean energy source for mining. However, once the industrial strength profitable infrastructure is in place, let's extend it. Let's build roads and housing and schools and hospitals, ultimately leading to human settlement. The net result can be people locating around new Bitcoin-driven hydroelectric energy infrastructure, with more and more of humanity clustering around cheap, clean energy sources. Historically, our energy challenge has been to move the power to the people. With Bitcoin, we can move the people to the power. Consider that the world's major population centers, think New York, London, Paris, Tokyo, each developed where they are geographically because of natural seaports, waterways, and trade routes. Energy was a non-factor because placement of these cities was all pre-energy, i.e. pre-fossil fuels. As Bitcoin finances the for-profit development of cheap, clean energy infrastructure on a massive scale, it can lead to a future in which more and more of the world's population lives near abundant energy with an extraordinarily low marginal cost of production. This matters because cheap energy equals human flourishing. That's an equation. Cheap energy equals human flourishing. Beyond the revolution in monetary policy that Bitcoin already represents, Bitcoin may also represent the biggest catalyst the world has ever known for developing abundant, clean, cheap energy and therefore one of the biggest catalysts in the world for human flourishing. Can you tell why I'm all in? All right, at 36 minutes here, we are about halfway through this thing. Uh, I want to uh, push through and see if we can get this completely done and have it published tonight. Um, so uh, let's take a quick break, thank our awesome sponsor for the show, and I'm going to go get something to drink real quick. So every single exchange in Bitcoin uses the same model, right? They use transaction fees. Level.co believes that the future of Bitcoin is free. They are creating a game-changing service. So they are bringing Bitcoin banking to the U.S. with direct deposits, checks, 
uh, wire transfers, a debit card, and zero conversion fees. Their profit model is simply to charge a flat rate of $3 for withdrawals, and uh, which actually includes the network fee, uh, and then $5 for same-day bank transfers and wires. And then, of course, they offer additional benefits like a private banker, a world debit card, and autopilot trading for anyone who spends just $9 a month. You have got to check these guys out. If you are in a state that they are available in, they're in 28 so far. And then please come tell me about it so that you can make me jealous. Um, Level.co, LVL.co, you got to check it out. The mystery of the missing Amazon millionaires, and is it too late to buy Bitcoin? Investing in Bitcoin, now exiting its 12th year, and especially after a more than 200% return in 2020, is extremely uncomfortable for almost everyone. Just as investing in Amazon stock was for most everyone following its 12th year as a public company. Even for investors who see the long-term potential of Bitcoin's monetary properties, they may wonder if they are just too late to invest. Did they miss it? Has all the future value been priced in? I believe our evolutionary biology makes us hardwired to consistently underguess the power of modern technological network effects, since nothing in our history resembles them. For the vast, vast, vast majority of human time, we lived in small tribes, entirely unconnected to other humans around the world. Combine this observation with prospect theory and regret aversion, and we can solve the mystery of the missing Amazon millionaires. In Amazon's early years, most investors were hesitant to buy it, even as they loved using the service, believing each year that they had missed it again, that the price had run away from them. Why? Because in each of those first 12 years, Amazon's high price that year was on average 175% higher than Amazon's open price of that year. Whoa! With that kind of price action, it is understandable why, year after year, investors thought they had missed it again. Yet, though understandable, year after year, investors were, with high consequence, very wrong. In the ensuing 12 years, years 13 through 24, Amazon increased 62x. Bitcoin is now 12 years old. What will one Bitcoin be worth 12 years from now? $100,000? $500,000? million dollars Or $100? I have absolutely no idea whatsoever about Bitcoin's future price. However, I strongly believe that the centralized class will continue to significantly underguess the appeal, and therefore likely the price, of a decentralized monetary network to the rapidly emerging decentralized class, us Bitcoiners, just as they significantly underguessed the power Google and Facebook and Netflix and Amazon every year for decades, and even as they loved those services and used them daily. From a valuation framework perspective, I believe Bitcoin should be viewed identically to those network business models, the value of the network growing with the number of users. Nor can Bitcoin ever be globally confiscated. Yes, individual countries can attempt to confiscate Bitcoin, and over time, some may try. 
just like gold was confiscated by the Gold Reserve Act in the U.S. in January 1934, nine months after FDR's April 1933 executive order made it a criminal offense for U.S. citizens to own it or trade it. However, just like the internet can be censored in certain countries but cannot be turned off, Bitcoin can be, attempted to be, confiscated in a country, but cannot be turned off. And just as no global off switch exists for the internet, for the same reasons and others, no such switch exists for Bitcoin. With regard to confiscation, and putting aside property rights for a moment, Bitcoin is really nothing more than a password to a private key that can be easily stored in anyone's memory via simple phrase memorization, which to me, makes it more saleable across space than gold and fiat in more ways than one. If anything, in my view, it is more likely that we see a country peg their currency to Bitcoin, perhaps a developing country escaping a hyperinflation in the coming decade, before we see one that tries to unsuccessfully confiscate it. Remember, unlike gold, with Bitcoin, there's no vault. And good luck confiscating my memory. Final thoughts on Bitcoin. The trillions of dollars of central bank-driven low or negatively yielding financial instruments demolish the dreams of savers and retirees, prohibiting an enormously large and growing group of individuals from meeting their retirement wants, wishes, and tragically, even needs. Free money has consequences because it is not free. No matter how well-intentioned, runaway global money printing and the resulting financial repression is society's largest global challenge. Regardless of Bitcoin's future ascent or descent, the long-dated monetary liabilities of individual Americans are denominated in U.S. dollars. Tackling our collective fiat-based societal retirement challenge head-on leads to an interesting and important question. What do you have to believe to be true for Bitcoin to be your vessel for savings? The answer, point to point, meaning from today until your long-dated liabilities, example, your retirement spending, start coming due. And regardless of U.S. government paper money volatility along the way, you only have to believe one thing, that U.S. government paper money will depreciate relative to Bitcoin over that time period, as it has roughly 80% in the last two years alone. Remember that the most important trades are the ones we make with our future selves, that our search for ever sounder money is an individual, intuition-based optimization, and that instinctively, we know our survival depends on durably storing of our life force. In this context, is it any surprise that millennials voting with their dollars and with more distrust for traditional institutions than their forebears, have already made Bitcoin, quote, the millennial savings account? And in this context, is it any surprise that two highly rated life and annuity insurers and two highly rated property and casualty reinsurers among the most brilliant, forward-thinking investors I know, and each by virtue of their business models with extraordinarily long-dated U.S. dollar-denominated liabilities, have direct or indirect exposure today to more than $350 million of Bitcoin, all purchased and held through our Bitcoin-focused affiliate. One thing I know for sure, 
they and insurers in general are just getting started. The power of the insight that only point-to-point -point U.S. government paper money depreciation matters, not volatility, will lead, I believe, to an explosion in Bitcoin-driven financial innovation, including Bitcoin-denominated life insurance for the 30- to 50-year-old crowd and Bitcoin-denominated annuities for the 50- to 70-year-old crowd. Having a non-zero allocation to Bitcoin-denominated life insurance and annuities may represent our most potent defense against the malevolent consequences of benevolent, well-intentioned, past, current, and future central bank activity. Given the potentially revolutionary impact of these products on our great country's retirement crisis, I will be working tirelessly on them. Stay tuned. When the Fed creates $3 trillion in a matter of weeks by pushing a button, it consolidates the power to price and value human time. In our country, humans are not supposed to have that kind of power over other humans. Quote, There are two ways to enslave a country. One is by the sword. The other is by debt. John Adams, 1826. When a regional Fed president brags in March about having, quote, an infinite amount of cash, he toxically undermines the American virtue of thrift, dangerously decouples risk-taking from the consequences of risk-taking, and epitomizes the influence of absolute centralized power. When Chairman Powell, no matter how well-intentioned, says in June, quote, we're not even thinking about thinking of raising rates. At Stone Ridge, we respond, we're not even thinking about thinking of not buying more Bitcoin. And we did. Bitcoin is our peaceful weapon of choice against central bank-driven time theft. However, buying Bitcoin this year wasn't new for us. Bitcoin has been the principal component of our firm's Treasury Reserve strategy since 2017, and many of us have been personally involved since 2013. Like everything we do at Stone Ridge, we have skin in the game. The owners of Stone Ridge Holdings Group together collectively own more than 40,000 Bitcoin, all purchased and held through our Bitcoin-focused affiliate. Actions speak louder than words. Larry Fink may call Bitcoin, quote, an index of money laundering, but I call it, quote, an index of money printing. Bitcoin definitely does not care what Larry Fink thinks, and... Paper is paper. As long as money printer go burr, I'll keep buying. Perhaps just in time, each U.S. citizen now has a choice. You can stay on the fiat standard, in which some people get to produce unlimited new units of money for free, just not you, or opt into the Bitcoin standard, in which no one gets to do that, including you. With the option now, of a monetary system governed by rules instead of rulers. On behalf of myself, my family, and the firms I'm responsible for leading, I've made my choice. At the most superficial level, buying Bitcoin as a portfolio diversifier or as a hedge against inflation makes good sense. And I obviously strongly believe that a 0% allocation is the wrong number for every investor. However, Bitcoin is anything but superficial. In a world replete with monetary unfairness, injustice, the institutionalization of moral hazard, 
and the state's increasing domestication of our individuality. Bitcoin's incorruptible fairness, justice, truth, and beauty represent a beacon for all optimists who seek personal sovereignty, personal improvement, and peace. As the founder of one of the largest Bitcoin-focused firms in the world, I don't mind if you come to Bitcoin for the price. I just hope you stay for the principles. Bitcoin is far more important than a non-zero portfolio allocation. At the opponent's slightest move, I move first. At Stone Ridge, our most important job is risk management, the safety of our clients' wealth and our own. We each work in risk management. Whether we choose it or not, it chooses us. Our risk management philosophy can be expressed as an equation. Risk management equals diversification plus humility. Notice the harmony between the two elements on the right side of the equation. The smaller the first, the smaller the second. The greater the first, the greater the second. Since 2012, we've been building our portfolio of business arcs ahead of the no-yield flood, now in the early innings of submerging the world. While Stone Ridge is just one small firm and we can only do so much, it is and always has been our mission to help the vulnerable and unprepared. All along, we knew the fiat flood was coming. We just did not know when or from what. But we did know that the vast majority would simply not know how to prepare, or even that they should. So, with humility, kindness, focus, and anti-fragility, we did and are doing it for them. At Stone Ridge, the embodiment of our risk management philosophy and flood preparation is the 1010 portfolio. In its purest, unobtainable form, the 1010 is 10 long-term allocations, each 10% weight, each with a persistent, pervasive, and intuitive risk premium, each uncorrelated with traditional markets, each uncorrelated with each other, each anti-fad. Our 1010 concept leaped closer to reality in 2020 with two new additions. It now includes both catastrophe reinsurance and non-catastrophe reinsurance, alternative lending, market insurance, SFR or single-family rentals, drug loyalty, private investments, Bitcoin, and collectibles, which is new. In the last year, we went from seven elements to nine. We're getting there. At our, quote, opponent's slightest move, a market crash, a sovereign default, a pandemic, the Fed's forward annihilation of 6040, the 1010 allows us to move first, a portfolio of business arcs already in place. Its extraordinary diversification harmonizes with its quiet humility structurally anticipating the unanticipatable, delivering peace of mind. If 2020 taught us anything, though, it's that the peace we seek isn't really peace of mind. It's peace from mind, from the silent ruminations. Do I have enough? Am I financially secure? In the decades ahead, Stone Ridge will help as many people as possible answer those questions decisively and affirmatively. In this year of historic trials and tribulations, the 1010 was tested and was spectacular. As yield shrinks, clarity sharpens. Now entering our 10th year as a firm, we find ourselves just beginning. People are awesome. Given our fundamental bedrock view at Stone Ridge that our people are everything, 
Perhaps it's not surprising that since the firm's inception, we've had a purposeful philosophy about our culture. Before getting into the specifics of our approach, some context is important. First, we have never had and never will have an HR department. Second, we have off-market policies. For example, we don't meter vacation, and we encourage a lot of it. We offer unlimited maternity and paternity leave, and strongly encourage people to take lots of time off to enjoy that magical time with their family. Stone Ridge also pays for any self-improvement program any employee wants to enroll in. This has included the firm paying for everything from meditation classes to executive MBAs, with no commitment to stay at Stone Ridge after completing the chosen program. And annually, we do a detailed competitive analysis to make sure we have what we believe to be the industry-best travel and expense policies. We simply expect our team to respect the firm's generosity when they travel. Remember those days? They do. However, my personal favorite HR policy is our bereavement policy. If a family member of any employee passes, our team of administrative assistants collectively spring into action to help with the travel logistics, if any, for the employee and anyone in their immediate family to attend the funeral. The firm also insists on paying for all travel and lodging expenses for all family attendees. Consider a non-executive Stone Ridge employee that grew up in a faraway war-torn country with a large immediate family raised solely by his grandmother who had just passed. Our policy could be, and has been, the difference between he and his entire family being able to pay their final respects in person or having to pick and choose who gets to go. While, of course, not the reason for the policy, the private letters I've received from impacted family members afterwards are among my most treasured possessions. We also expect each employee be the best in the industry at what they do, regardless of their role at the firm, no matter how senior or junior they are, whether they help the front of the house or the back of the house. The bargain we have with each employee when they are recruited and when they show up is this. You get to work here, but you must be the best in the industry at what you do. And if you're not yet, that's okay. Very few of us are. I'm certainly not, but you must want to be and actually be on the path with concrete plans for personal improvement. Our high standards also challenge each employee to embody and add in their own way to our firm principles. Focus, be kind, be humble, anti-fragile, and we compensate accordingly. Yet apart from the commonality across our firm of sharing these core values and of supporting each other as we set high standards for ourselves, each one of us at Stone Ridge is radically unique. We have a secret weapon at the firm. It is how we honor that individuality. Everyone at Stone Ridge has a rich history that led them to be who they are today. Mine starts with my many relatives who were forced to escape the Nazis. Tragically, not at all successfully, but enough that I'm here. They were so poor my dad had to work two full-time jobs starting at eight years old pumping gas at his uncle's gas station and stocking shelves at a local grocery store. As a result, when my dad went in to register for Social Security at the New York field office some years ago, he showed the clerk all of his documentation, and my mom and I got to witness something beautiful. After evaluating all of my dad's documentation, the clerk gathered his colleagues around his desk to show them something that at least no one in that particular office had ever seen or heard of before. A U.S. citizen who had a taxable income in part of seven decades, the 1930s through the 1990s. Impromptu, they gave my dad a standing ovation, 
leading impromptu to uncontrollable tears in my mom's eyes and my own. As a little kid, my dad was destitute, at times starving, and with virulent anti-Semitism occasionally thrown in for good measure. The anti-Semitism continued so strongly into adulthood that he ultimately decided to change his last name from Birnbaum to Stevens. Everyone has a story. Nothing in life is easy, obvious, or a straight line. None of us will get out alive. However, in the interim, we each get to choose the work on which we focus our attention. In that beautiful commencement speech, Wallace also said, quote, Our most significant education isn't really about the capacity to think, but rather about the choice of what to think about, and the people with whom we seek to accomplish that work. Because I truly believe that people are awesome. One of the things we teach at Stone Ridge is that no one can compete with you on being you. Thus, we have another policy, less objectively enforceable, but perhaps our most important, about fitting in. Don't try. Fitting in requires you to contort yourself to be someone you think others want you to be. In the process, you give up your biggest competitive advantage, being yourself. When we recruit, we recruit for uncorrelated weirdness. We first accept the fact that we are all quite weird in our own idiosyncratic ways. I can comfortably say that as a dating-challenged former high school varsity bowler and mathlete. I lead from the front in this department. In high school, I more accurately aspired to be dating-challenged. Reality was worse. We then seek others who are weird in concretely different ways than the folks already working at the firm. When a recruit finally makes it through and shows up, we tell them, no matter what you do, do not try to fit in, because the opposite of fitting in is belonging, and to really contribute, we need you to belong. Belonging does not require you to change who you are. It requires you to be who you are. Our management committee is intentional in helping everyone feel like they belong at the firm, because if they work here, they do. To make a truly original contribution, you have to be irrationally obsessed with something for an extended period of time. And staying irrationally obsessed, especially because we never know if success is on the other side, requires a feeling of deep safety that only comes from feeling true belonging. Imagine an entire firm feeling like they truly belong. That's powerful. I'm not sure we're batting a thousand, but that's our goal. And I think we're at least awfully close. Especially after all of us locked arms together this year, while the snow in the Stone Ridge snow globe was at times mercilessly shaken, and held each other in place. The snow, mercifully, has settled down. For now, however, our arms remained locked together, ready for the next time the snow stirs, which it will, and the next time, and the next time, and the next time. Indeed, the Stone Ridge culture itself is what powers the firm's anti-fragility, so that we may, together, unleash our collective creativity in the service of our investors. We innovate to prepare for an uncertain future, focused on our mission, financial security for all. Our Partnership In 2020, we confronted, too often, the shortness of life. However, we end the year and begin anew, overflowing with gratitude for our health, our families, and for you, our investors. You contribute the capital necessary to sustain and propel groundbreaking product development. We contribute our collective career's worth of experience in sourcing, structuring, execution, and risk management. Together, it works. On behalf of everyone at Stone Ridge, 
We look forward to another year of sharing responsibility for your wealth and navigating our journey together. See you in person in 2021. Sincerely, Ross L. Stevens, Founder and CEO. Woo! That was an amazing piece. Um, the density of uh, the, the, the Bitcoin breakdown and the four aha moments he had uh, were just so spot on. Um, and this is just really amazing. Uh, the, you know, Stone Ridge is something that I've known loosely about, but I've not really dug into. This is, this is the most I have done anything related to Stone Ridge. I've just kind of known them in passing. Um, but holy crap, this guy sounds like he's read and or it sounds like he listens to the damn show and <laughs> everything that we read on this show. I mean, the whole first section is talking about Bitcoin and human time, which is like five of Breedlove's pieces. Uh, uh, it goes into the uh, Bitcoin demolishes the cage uh, today, gradually, tomorrow, suddenly, you know, it sounds sounds like a nod to Parker Lewis. And there are just tons of other little little tidbits in here that just like I, I feel like I've read in some other piece where there was a whole six pages just about that one idea. And he just boils that down. And it's just it's fascinating. Like the. The companies that have this mindset, this, this is the really interesting thing about how Bitcoin can change shit so quickly is that the people who properly prepare and have the philosophy that can understand and see the risks in the future and why Bitcoin is such a massive payout or a massive opportunity. Uh, and, just, and just that it's a way to point to, I love the point to point, like from here to 10 years out, is Bitcoin going to do better than the dollar? Look at the conditions of the dollar, look at the conditions and fundamentals of Bitcoin. Just ask that question. Ignore all the volatility because the volatility is just noise. But for those who can see that perspective, who can, who can really look at something with, uh, you know, he kind of, he said it with a little bit of humility that maybe we don't know what the hell we're talking about. You know, you know maybe we really need to be asking the question, what is water? What is right in front of us? that we have been completely missing because something has to be there because everything's going to shit for a reason. You know, it's not just arbitrary. We've misunderstood something. We've taken a wrong path. Something fundamental is broken. And if we're not willing to have a little bit of humility to step back and look at what might be broken about our systems and entertain the fact that we should be fixing something much more fundamental to solve the avalanche of societal problems that we seem to have right now. Uh, if we can't take a step back and change our perspective, we're not going to get anywhere. But when, when you have these cycles, when you have companies that realize the value of, of a market price, that, that realize the value of secure monetary policy, make responsible decisions that are good at risk management, that see the writing on the wall and understand our monetary system, the return on being right is going to be astronomical. They are collectively holding 40,000 Bitcoin together with the potential of Bitcoin to 10x in a year, which I think is sitting right in front of us. 
it's extremely difficult to underestimate how much value will simply be secured and created in the coming decade from the fact that the people who understand where we are coming from, why it is broken, and where we are headed to are going to be the new capital allocators of the world. This is where things like politics, culture, organizations, the way you build a company, the way you think about your employees, these things change drastically when you have a shift like that, where a mindset is required to take advantage of a massive economic opportunity. And damn it, if Bitcoin is not that, um, uh, his little short section on, uh, on jet, just the energy section is just one of the greatest, uh, parts of this whole piece. Um, so, uh, I hope you guys like that. Sorry it took me so long to get it out. Um, but, uh, we are done. I'm not going to have any more guys take. I've got to, uh, get this published and get back working on, uh, magic internet money audiobook also coming soon. Uh, lots of work to do. So I'm going to get back to it. Don't forget to share this out with everybody you know. Anybody you think of, like, you know, he talks about in this piece, a 0% allocation is the the least advisable thing or something. I can't remember exactly his words. Um, uh, but it's about the worst choice that you can make is to just be 0% allocated to Bitcoin. Share this out with somebody. Share this out with somebody you know in Bitcoin or, or who is who is looking in on Bitcoin and thinks, oh, damn it, I'm too early. And, and, and point them to that Amazon section and people who think, oh, but, you know, uh, Bitcoin's, Bitcoin's going to boil the oceans and point them to this article and the section about the energy revolution. Share this out to somebody who doesn't trust a rando on Twitter who has an opinion about Bitcoin and has a really hard time making assessments for themselves, but is willing to stop and take a break and listen when a large uh, risk management firm or an investment fund is is willing to break it down in this way. Uh, and if you're not bullish at the end of this thing, then I don't, I don't, I don't know. You can't be helped. <laughs> um, with that, guys, thank you so much. Uh, much love to Level.co, our mobile Bitcoin banking services, and the Bitbox O2, a simple, secure, and sleek hardware wallet for your cold storage, for your Bitcoin cold storage. Those guys have made this show possible and a huge thank you to them and the awesome stuff that they are building for this ecosystem. With that, I'm Guy Swan and I am out. I love you all and I will catch you on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. And until then, take it easy, guys. This has been a 111 production, and you are listening to Bitcoin Audible on the Crypto Economy Network.